The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. You can find more from Dr. DeRoshi at www.jasonderoshi.com. Paul said, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, what is missed by some is that that verse is preceded by Paul saying to Timothy, you were raised in sacred writings that are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. Sacred writings. Timothy, raised as a young boy, what were those sacred writings? Well, we know that 2 Timothy 3.15 his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. And in Acts 16.1, we're told they were Jews. What were those sacred writings that are able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ? Jesus' only Bible was the Old Testament. He never read Revelation. He never got to work through 1 Peter. Paul's Bible that he proclaimed gospel from. He said to the Corinthians, I resigned to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. And yet he was an Old Testament preacher. Could you preach that way? I hope increasingly we can. But a key element that, that hinges for us is what are we to do with Old Testament laws? We have an apostle who says of his Bible that he calls God, that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Could that mean that we can legitimately use Old Testament law to correct New Covenant saints? How do we think about that in faithfully biblical Christian ways? So tonight, that is my goal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us your word. As I speak, I want to speak with the, as if speaking the very oracles of God. As I serve, I want to serve in the strength that you supply so that Christ may be praised. So come. In the minds of these people, give great help to assess whether even what I am teaching is faithful to the book. I pray that you would guide us to let us all be mutually encouraged by each other's faith tonight. As I prayed before. Coming up here, I thank you that you use clay pots. And I pray that tonight you would work through me in such a way that shows that the surpassing power of life transformation and Christ exaltation. Open your word to us. We are needy and you are worth pursuing. I pray these things through Christ. And for Christ, amen. 
the Old Testament law and the Christian. I've borrowed the alliteration from Brian Rosner's book, Paul and the Law. And reappropriating Mosaic instruction for New Covenant saints. And I want to use that as our framework tonight for trying to understand how the New Testament authors and indeed how the Old Testament authors anticipated those living on the other side of the coming of the Messiah were to think about Moses' law. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. But in bidding us to fly and in giving us wings, what's the path we're taking? And how does it relate to the law? Specifically the Mosaic law. When the New Testament authors use the language of law, most commonly, they are referring to the Mosaic instructions, which the Jews have counted as 613 of them, to guide the pursuit of holiness. So when I talk about law and the Christian, I'm talking about how that law relates to us. That's old covenant law, but we're not part of that covenant anymore. Yet, it, yet those laws are still part of our Bible. So what do we do? This topic has relevance for at least three reasons tonight. Number one, because we, are, we continue to be in an age where people, in fact the majority of the world, every other religion but Christianity, has a, I will get right with God by doing and looking better. By doing more. It's about self-help. It was the plague of the Pharisees. Here's what Jesus had to say. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Now what's amazing is that in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus confronted this legalism, this trust in your own doing as a means for getting right with God, he even said that the Pharisee who was trusting in himself for righteousness, that Pharisee was able to say, thank you, God, that I'm not like someone else. You can have a thanks be to God kind of obedience and it still be sin. If that quest for obedience is a quest for being right with God, justification, law, Sinners to fit into the justification category. Only in the justification category. Paul stressed, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Romans 3.28 And again, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Justification and righteousness both come from the same word group in Greek and in Hebrew. So when we're talking about justify, we're talking about making right, declaring someone right. 
And as sinners, the only way we can be declared right is by God declaring of us what is not true of ourselves. That is, that we have lived rightly in every respect. That is, right order in this world exists where God is at the top, where He is glorified above all things, and none of us have lived that way. We have all fallen short of that glory, and therefore none of us are righteous. So the only way that we can stand right with God is if He declares us declares to be what is not true what is not actually there, by faith. And how can He do that justly? Because Christ came and actually lived with right order for the glory of God perfectly. He became sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. But legalists are those that attempt by their own doing to be counted right. Foundational to all Reformation doctrine is that justification is by grace alone, alone, in Christ alone. That leads us, though, to our second challenge. Because many blur the Reformation doctrine and start talking about salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And never did the Reformers talk about salvation in those categories. It was justification, which is one aspect of salvation. Sanctification, New Testament and Old Testament declare, necessary fruit. No one will see the Lord. So how do we relate a call, high call to sanctification which is about Christ working in us actual fruits. And how does that relate to the fact that with respect to being right with God, it's all Christ and only ours by faith? Paul said, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience and many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience will many be made righteous. The second challenge that I want to refer to is, after legalism that we're facing, is antinomianism. Some of you are familiar with the discussion that has happened in gospel coalition circles in the last five years, between Tully and Chivijan and many others regarding the place of obedience and the nature of grace. Tullian recently wrote, We justify our legalism under the guise of keeping the moral law as we perceive it in Scripture. If you seek to keep the moral law, that's legalism, says Tullian. Now what's so striking about that is that that's not the category that traditionally has been counted as legalism. The pursuit of honoring God's moral precepts is not by its nature legalistic if the pursuit is one of growth and holiness rather than trying to justify ourselves before God. But Tullian has created a framework where obedience 
is not a necessary part of the Christian life. He says, so, so his view of one-way love, that's, that's the book that I'm quoting from, it means that God electively loves us without expecting anything in return, be it repentance or obedience. Justifying grace, though, is never a license for immorality. Paul, how he talks about moral precepts. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? May it ever be. Or Galatians 5, 13. You were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, through love, serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16 Live at, as people who are free, using your freedom as a cover-up for Or Jude 4 Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Being saved is not simply to gain a Savior. It's to gain what Jude calls a Master and a Lord. Make Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Did you hear that? Central to discipleship is not just teaching. It's teaching people to obey, to be authentic, surrendered, passionate followers of the risen Savior. We must minimize the call to obedience. Antinomians celebrate grace of blood-bought justification while pushing aside the grace of blood-bought sanctification. Do we realize that when Jesus died, He didn't die just to make us right with God. He died to see us changed more into His likeness. The Westminster Divines long ago highlighted this. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ in His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet... It is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces. It is no dead faith worketh by love. We are justified by faith alone, but the faith that alone justifies is never alone in the person that has that authentic faith. Fruits are born in us. Paul says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. death, but the Sanctification is part of That's why a few verses earlier, Romans 6.17, Paul said, Thanks be to God you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were given over. 
that verb, paradidomi, to be given over. We see that in Romans 1. They were given over by God to a debased mind, given over to sexual immorality. But the believer is one who, thanks be to God, has obeyed because they've been, by God, given over to obedience. The Lord is at work. And it's all because of blood-bought grace. Jesus' words to the woman caught in adultery, Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is not an antinomian word from Jesus. Nomian, namas, law. Anti-law. That's what we're talking about. Paul says, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And again, let the thief no longer steal, Paul says. And still again, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. The New Testament authors do Hesitate, giving commands to the church. Being a Christian is not to be against law. As we will see, it's about understanding and following the right law, the law of Christ. Peter said, you shall be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, be holy as I am holy. Did you get that? Peter the Apostle. You, Christian church, be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, be holy, for I am holy. Where's that found? Where? Leviticus. Leviticus. Whoa. Pete, we're New Covenant saints here, bro. What are you, uh, sorry, what are you using the Old Testament law of Moses for in the context of the Christian worship service? But that's how, that was his logic. Be holy in all of your conduct. Why, Peter? Why? Because Jesus said so. That's his argument. His argument is since it is written in Leviticus? Really? Yeah, really. How are we to think about such things? What's clear, I hope, is that Christian teaching that minimizes the call to obedience is not faithful. Then we come to our third category, just being anti-Old Testament altogether. Recently, in his book, Irresistible, Andy Stanley said, The church's problem today is our incessant habit of reaching back into the old covenant concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. That's the church's biggest problem. We're using the Old Testament. Holding too tightly to the Old Testament results in, his words, prosperity gospel, the Crusades, anti-Semitism, legalism, exclusivism, judgmentalism, and the like. For Stanley, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament, he says, is right up there at the top of the list. Thus, he urges church leaders, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? 
his words. While Stanley rightly recognizes that Jesus' fulfillment of some laws means those laws are by nature annulled, abrogated, or about the food laws. There's no food unclean anymore. Or temple worship. It looks a lot different today, worshiping God, now that the single sacrifice for all time has come. And we don't have to gather to one building to meet him. Those that are serving in southern Ethiopia, when I teach under a mango tree, Jesus is there. Jesus is there. Some things have changed, and Stanley recognizes that. But he wrongly assumes means is that Christians should receive no benefit from these laws. Also assumes that all the laws are abrogated in the same way. He also, I believe, fails to recognize the beauty of the fact that we've got Christian preachers like Jesus, Christian preachers like Paul, who their only Bible was the Old Testament. Jesus not only said it was about him, Paul said whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Romans 15.4. Whatever. And that's right after he quotes the Psalter. So what are our goals for tonight? Our goals are twofold. One, I pray that God would help us better understand the relationship of the Mosaic Law Covenant to the New Covenant so that we can have greater appreciation for the justifying work of Jesus in us and the sanctifying work of Jesus through us. I want us to celebrate Jesus more tonight by understanding better the relationship of the covenants. And two, I want us to better understand how the Mosaic law relates to you and I on our daily pursuit of Christ. When we read our devotions, how am I supposed to be thinking about appropriating Moses' law as a new covenant saint? I hope that tonight will help us. So as I said, I'm going to use three terms that Dr. Brian Rosner used in one of his books on the Christian and Old Testament law, that biblical authors the law of Moses as a law covenant. They replace it with the law of Christ, but then the New Testament saints do not hesitate reappropriating and culling from Old Testament laws in their preaching, in their teaching, in their counseling, in light of the work of Christ. So let's consider each of these. The biblical authors repudiate the Mosaic Law Covenant. The Law of Moses, from the New Testament perspective, bore a ministry of death. That's how Paul talks. The very commandment that promised life to me. Do this and you will live. The very commandment that promised life to me brought death to me. Notice the contrast that Paul makes. Old covenant, 
If the ministry of death carved on letters and stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not New Covenant ministry of the Spirit have even more? There was real glory. God was disclosing himself in that old covenant law. But bore a ministry of condemnation that has now been superseded by a new covenant ministry of righteousness. This is not new to Paul. Moses' three favorite words in Deuteronomy to describe the people, they were stubborn, they were unbelieving, and they were rebellious. And they couldn't change. They didn't want to change, but they couldn't change. Why? Because Deuteronomy 29 verse 4 said, God had not given them eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to know Him. Because in God's purposes, He purposed that the law would destroy in order to bring about the need for His Son. The Mosaic Law was not characterized by faith. This is what I think Paul means in Galatians 3.12 when he just says, the law is not of faith. It's not that they weren't supposed to believe. No, Moses actually spanks them for not believing. But the age of law was not characterized by faith, but by stubbornness, unbelief, and rebellion. There needed to be something better, and Moses himself anticipated that betterness. The Mosaic law, we're told, multiplied transgression, exposed sin, and brought wrath. The law came to increase the trespass. By works of law, no human being will be justified. Why? Because what does the law do? It shows me that I'm a sinner. The law brings wrath. That's what the law was for. And again, the law of Moses. God gives his good law to the Israelites. The rest of the world that never received that law, God was actually telling the Israelites, this is the way to go. This is how you need to live. You want to enjoy life? Stick by me. When I say jump, jump. When I say go right, right. Stay with me. And they didn't. They couldn't. But then Jesus comes, representing the people, and does what the people could not do. God did what the law, weakened as it was by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and forced He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the Romans 8. Because all sinners, no one is justified by doing. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of law. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Why? Because it's a dead way. We can't be good enough. All of us have sinned and fallen short. And all of us, therefore, need a Savior. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails even in one point is worthy of hell. 
So the biblical authors repudiate the old covenant law. But they also replace it. They don't just say, Moses isn't what we need. They move on and say, Jesus has given us something better in how He is working. Christians are free from the death-bringing Mosaic law. Sin will not have dominion over you. Why? Since you're not under law, you're under grace. There's been a, a, a transition, a movement, a superseding from the old covenant era of death to a new covenant era of righteousness. Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way. Not of the old code, but the new way of the Spirit. There's been a, a transfer, a shift in redemptive history. And the center of that movement is Jesus. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming of faith would be until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our, our guardian, our babysitter until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, don't look backwards. We're not under that framework. Moses has no direct authority in your life. You've switched your master. We're in the age of faith. No longer under the guardian. No longer under the guardian. Christians are directly bound... Not by the law of Moses, but by the law of Christ. That is the law to love. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as one under the law, though as a believer I am not myself under the law that I might win those who were under the law. But to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. But that is outside the law of Moses. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. Paul's able to minister to the Jew who had the Old Testament and able to minister to the... who never were given... But he is not lawless. He is under the law of God, which is the law of Christ. It's called by other things. But one of them is the law of Christ. And as you do, reaching out in service to another, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. Here's James. The one who looks into the perfect law, it's law of freedom, not of bondage. And the one who looks in and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing, in his doing, in his doing. Not just a hearer of the word, but a doer of the law of liberty, 
If you really fulfill the royal law associated with the son of David, according to the scripture, you shall... Well, if you fulfill the law of love, you are doing well. So speak and act as those who are to be judged according to the law of liberty. I think this is James's category for the law of Christ. We have a new pattern that Moses never had. The perfect obedience of Jesus. But we need more than a pattern. We need power. And power comes in two ways, through pardon. The only sins that any of us can conquer in this room are forgiven ones. Did you hear that? We need a God who is 100% for us in order to see lust, jealousy, frustration, Anger conquered in our lives. We need to know that God is for us and that He's not waiting for us good enough. The only sins that we can conquer are forgiven ones. Ones that have already been addressed at the cross. Justification has to precede sanctification. Do not put the quest for obedience in the wrong place. Jesus is... Obedience is the basis upon which all of our life exists. And if we do not celebrate 100% that we have a God who is fully for us through the person and work of Christ, we will not see sin conquered in our lives. Today, the direct authority for guiding Christians is not Moses' instructions, but Christ's words through his apostles and not Moses. What I want you to see is that Moses himself anticipated this. Moses is calling for good things. Love the Lord with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus didn't make that up. That's Moses. And yet, when you proclaim good things, like live for the glory of God to hard-hearted people, it will condemn them. And Moses recognized something's going to have to change. Because even though I say, hear, O Israel, hear, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Hear, O Israel. He says, God has not given you ears to hear. But I tell you, the day is coming when the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Now to be like Moses doesn't just mean he has to be a prophet. It means that he has to be a covenant mediator prophet. And no other Old Testament prophet fit that bill. Notice the context. The Lord your God will raise up for you A prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers, he has to be a Jew, it is to him you shall listen. Not able to listen to Moses, they have no ears to listen to Moses. They are deaf. It will take a miracle of transformation for them to change. But the day is coming when a prophet like Moses will rise. Like Moses in what way? You know, just 
as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, Mount Sinai, on the day of said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord heard your words, and he answered you and set me apart to speak to you the very word of the Lord. This whole context is not just about being a a prophetic covenant mediator. And Jesus is that prophet like Moses to whom people would listen. Remember how Moses never made it into the promised land? Oh, wait, he did. When did he make it into the promised land? When? At the transfiguration. And at the transfiguration, he's there with Elijah who of all Old Testament prophets in the storyline looked most like Moses. He did great signs and wonders. But when Elijah got to Mount Sinai and the people were complaining, we want something more than Moses. God didn't speak in the thunder. He didn't speak in the earthquake. Indeed, our as us think what it translated, what he heard was a thin silence. And the point was, you're not the new mediator, and I'm not giving any new word. The people have to abide by Moses' law, period. And all the way up to Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, it says, listen to the words of Moses, my servant. The entire Old Testament age is controlled by the the voice of Moses. The law of Moses and the law is not of faith. That entire period was characterized by rebel rather than hearts. But the day is coming where I will raise up a prophet and to him, to him you will listen. Here's what we read. God say, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen. Hear, O Israel. Same word. Listen, O Israel. Of the Lord your God. Listen to Jesus. He is the new covenant mediator. That's why when we get to the Great Commission, disciples involves teaching people to obey what Jesus had to say. And how do we gain it? We have Jesus wrote us of what Jesus wrote. And then we have many more as they begin to apply all the framework that they gained, saw, faced the resurrected Son of God. It transformed all of their understanding of reality, including their reading of Old Testament laws. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus. I have things to say to you, my apostles, but you can't bear them right now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. That's what the New Testament is. He'll guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
When we follow the words of the apostles, we are following none other than the words of Jesus. This is why the early church didn't devote themselves to Moses' teaching. It was to the apostles' teaching. It is upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that the church is built. So the biblical authors repudiate the law of Moses as old covenant. They replace it with the law of Christ. But here's the challenge. In surrendering to the apostles' teaching, if you read your New Testaments carefully, you'll see that these apostles have their Bibles open, that is, their Old Testaments open all the time. They're not preaching without a text. They have their text open. To surrender to the apostles is to surrender to faithful Old Testament teaching that is being done only in light of the resurrection of Christ. Paul could never read his Old Testament in the same way once he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So the biblical authors we will now see reappropriate the law of Moses when teaching the law of Christ. New Testament authors don't hesitate to reappropriate Old Testament. Paul says that all, not some, all Mosaic commandments are summarized in the call to to distinguish a moral law, a civil law, and ceremonial law. How many have heard that distinction? It's a helpful distinction for teaching, but I don't think it's a biblical distinction. To talk about morality is to talk about love. Loving God, loving neighbor. What Paul says here in Romans 13 is that the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, like... Don't tattoo your body. Leviticus 28, 29. Sorry, Leviticus 19, 28. That's and he says, that's about love of neighbor. Every commandment is moral. Every single one. And all of them apply in the way that they show us what it looks like. All the law... I think Paul is saying, oh, nothing to anyone except to love. For those who love have fulfilled the law. That's Romans 13, verse 8. And then he goes on to this, to say, for the commandments, whatever they are, all of the others are fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law is still significant. Paul uses Moses to stress that a workman is worthy of his pay. You remember how he says, you know that text about muzzling an ox? Well, be sure to pay. If he's working, worthy of getting food while he's working. Paul charges children to heed one of the Ten Commandments. Attains the promise of life. Have you ever thought of that? Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right... That's the reason why they should obey, because it's the right thing to do. 
Honor your father and mother. Why? Because it is the first commandment with a promise. Paul, I'm New Covenant. I'm a follower of Jesus, and you're pulling Moses out on me? Yes. What are you doing? How can you do that? Peter urges Christians to pursue holiness because an old covenant charge is part of Christian scripture. He who called you, as he who called you is holy, you are holy in the way that you think, in the way that you click your mouse, in the way that you talk to your spouse and your children, in what you watch on television and how you're thinking when you go to your closet to choose out your clothes in the morning. Be holy in all your conduct because God told us through Moses, be holy because I am holy. In every one of these examples, these New Testament authors are just using their Bible to guide wise Christian living. Fulfilling Old Testament predictions. When Gentile Christians without the Mosaic law actually do or keep the law, they identify that Christ has transformed them. Remember these texts? When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now that's my rendering of the Greek text. The ESV actually puts the comma in a different place. They say... When Gentiles who do not have the law, comma, by nature, do what the law requires. And so many people view this as a natural law text. Like you can even be a non-believer and keep the law in certain ways. I don't think that's what it is. I think the whole context is the Jews gained Moses. The Gentiles, the Gentiles do not have the law by nature. But they're not born with the law. But all of a sudden, having met the risen Christ, they are doing what the law requires. Indeed, it says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. I can find no texts. This would be the only option. No text in the entire Bible where the law is associated with the heart and it not be talking about regenerate people. I think this is an allusion to Jeremiah 31, 33 where the promise is that in the New Covenant age, the New Covenant saints will have the law written on their hearts. But not only Jeremiah 31, there's two other texts that are used all over the New Testament, Deuteronomy 30 and Ezekiel 36. We get them at the end of the chapter. So, if a man who is uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, keeps the law. So Paul's used the language of doing the law and then keeping the law. If he keeps the precepts of the law, that word there... Um, uh, uh, shoot, that word is dikayama, dikayam, dikayamas. It's the same word that shows up in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven, where God says, "In that new day." When I take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit in you and cause you to keep all my precepts. Dikaiomata, there it is. That's the plural. Dikaiomata, the, the, the precepts of the law. That's what's promised for the new covenant believer. 
That with the help of the Spirit, you'll keep the precepts of the law. If a Gentile who doesn't have the law, who's uncircumcised, is actually keeping the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcised circumcision, will he not be counted by God as a true follower, a true member of the family? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn all of you Jews who had the law but aren't following Christ and therefore aren't keeping the law at all. What is a true Jew? A true Jew is not one outwardly and physically. Circumcision is not merely outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. In that day I will circumcise the foreskin of your heart, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with the result that you will live. That's what's to happen in the new covenant age, in the age of transformation. Hearts are to be all that, the calloused shell that doesn't allow the word to penetrate is going to be removed. And all of a sudden, hearts are going to be beating with life for the master. And Paul's saying it's happening among the Gentiles. And the fact that it's happening among the Gentiles who never had the old covenant law, it's proof that they have encountered something better and bigger than you ever did through Moses, the person of Jesus. And it's by the Spirit. That's Ezekiel 36, 27. So we get Jeremiah 31, 33, Ezekiel 36, 27, and Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, all in Romans 2, talking about Gentiles who've been transformed. And the way that he talks about it is they're law keepers, yet never having received the law. New Testament authors believed all the Old Testament is profitable. All of it can instruct and guide. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And all Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Fulfilling Moses' own prediction... Jesus stressed the lasting validity of Mosaic instruction for New Covenant saints when read in light of how he fulfills the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, is the prediction, I will circumcise your heart so that you will love me with all. Deuteronomy 30, verse 8, says... And you shall that day, and you will listen. I haven't given you ears to hear. God hasn't given you in the old covenant age ears to hear. But in that future day, you will turn and you will hear. You'll hear my voice. Notice though which what it says specifically. They'll listen to the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments. Which ones? That I am commanding you today. Moses, are you saying that in that future day of heart transformation, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy's law is going to matter? Yes! Here's Jesus. Don't you think that I have come to abolish the law? I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Indeed, until heaven and earth pass away. This morning as I was flying in, the heavens were declaring the glory of God. 
And as long as they're still declaring it, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Not a jot, not a tittle, not an iota, not a dot. The law until all is accomplished. So there's this predictive nature that seems to be built in to this law. And I'm just going to read here. All the law and the prophets predicted, pointed to a a radical life of loving neighbor. All the law and the prophets hinge on this. Love God, love neighbor. This is what Jesus embodied in his own existence. It's what he called for among his saints. And it's what he empowers. Jesus saw a deep continuity between his ministry ministry. When I read this text in Matthew 5, and I see that he says, know this, not a little bit, not the smallest little etch on a Hebrew letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be counted least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I think what Jesus is talking about here is teaching and doing commandments of the law. I don't think he's referring to his antitheses. You've heard it said, but I say they're about to come. I think in this context right here, he is referring to the very law of Moses, and he's calling people to teach the law and do the law that he just referred to. But to teach do it only in light of his law fulfillment. That means every law matters for us, but none of the law matters for us directly. All the law matters for us indirectly, when read in light of Christ's law fulfillment. And how he fulfills each law can look differently depending on the law. So here's my diagram. Jesus is in the center, and he's like a lens. We all know of certain laws like adultery, that those who were being faithful to not commit adultery in the Old Testament, it looks the same as what it means for a Christian to look faithful and to not commit adultery in the new. Traditionally, that's been referred to as the moral law that stands constant through all time. But even that law, I think we have a new pattern and we have a new power. But it goes through the center of the lens, so it looks so the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But other laws, when they hit the lens of Christ... They get bent. They get bent like the Sabbath law, I believe. And I can talk about this more when Brother Kevin comes up. But I believe the Sabbath, Jesus transforms the Sabbath law. He doesn't annul it. He's the one who brings the rest, the sovereign rest, God seated on his throne. And and through Jesus, we begin to see of what right order in God's universe looks like. And it started on the Lord's Day. The new creation started on the seventh day. 
On the first day of the week, rather. On the first day of the week, there was new creation. And all of a sudden, Jesus has inaugurated the Sabbath. He's brought peace to the universe. Already, but not yet. But Sabbath has been transformed in the same way. Now, seven days a week, you and I are enjoying rest that Christ has secured. He extends. Parapet building. Go to Home Depot and ask... I need to build a parapet. And they'll look at you funny, probably. What's a parapet? The fence around the top of a flat roof. We didn't have many of those in Minneapolis where I was for 14 years. But in Jesus, as even, I mean, these types of laws were always designed to be case studies. It was all about love of neighbor. You don't want somebody to come in and get knocked off your roof and incur, you incur blood guilt. But what that means is that are there other areas of your house building that you need to be mindful of when it comes to loving your neighbor? Everything counts when it comes to loving God. So put ice on your sidewalk and put a, a, a railing up in front of your house and you've got babies over. And you can use Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 to give instruction on such things. Because it clarifies what loving God looks like, gives an example. And through Jesus, it's extended into numerous different contexts that we can honor Him. And finally, something like unclean food. When Jesus comes, what does it look like to do and to teach that law? Well, it's going to look different because Jesus is clear. He has, there's, there's no foods that are unclean. So we can eat anything, like bacon. It's victory food. And I'll, I can talk more about that later as well. These four ways, maintaining, transforming, extending, and annulling is all part of fulfilling what Moses said would happen in that future day of heart circumcision. You will return to me and you will listen to my voice and you will do all that I have commanded you today. But it's not Moses on his own. It's Moses mediated through all that Jesus has secured for us in light of his person and work. So in conclusion, three ways the Mosaic Law bears lasting value for Christians. The Mosaic Law portrays the character of God. He is holy, and the law, as we pursue it, we begin to engage and look like more look more like we, we begin to align more with what God values, with what he delights in. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Through heeding God's voice, they would be holy. Be holy to me, for I am holy. The law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy. God is holy. So be holy in all your conduct. The Mosaic Law gives us a lens for celebrating the character of God. Next, the Mosaic Law anticipates Christ as the perfect law keeper who is obedient to sinners, so by the obedience of one man, many are made righteous. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that, and this is my understanding of Romans 8.4, in order that 
highest requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, not by us. In this text. By Jesus, in us. That's how I understand that text. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. As we celebrate the Mosaic Law, we one of the ways we can do that, it, it makes much of Jesus and all that Jesus is for us as justifier. In human form, death even through his suffering. The law clarifies the makeup of love and wise living. The Mosaic law helps us understand how wide and deep God's love is. If all we do is look at the commands of Jesus, we miss of examples that God has disclosed to us of what love of neighbor and love of him is supposed to look like. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Why? Because this is the law and the prophets. This was headed. Love the Lord your God. Find first one and love your neighbor. On these two commandments, all hinge. Love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The not commit adultery, not steal, not covet. Any other commandment, it's summed up in this word, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to neighbor, therefore love is a fulfilling of the law. So I've employed, employed Rosner's alliteration that the biblical authors repudiate the Mosaic Law Covenant, they replace it with the Law of Christ, and they reappropriate the instruction as prophecy, pointing to the perfections of Jesus, and as wisdom to guide the church. Tullian Chavision recognizes that the biblical authors repudiate the law, but he fails to recognize that it's replaced. Andy Stanley recognizes that it's been replaced, but he fails to recognize that it's been reappropriated. We need to be those who are able to keep all three R's in our understanding of how to be Christians in relation to Moses' law. None of the Mosaic law is directly binding on Christians, but is indirectly binding through the mediation of Christ. You cannot just say, Moses said it, therefore. You have to understand it through the, the scope of the history of redemption and what has Jesus done in relation to that particular law. But then we can recognize that all the law still matters for us. When, read, when we read the Mosaic law through the lens of Christ, Christ maintains some laws, transforms others, extends others, and annuls some. Thank you for listening to this message from Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Research Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Dr. Jason DeRoshi. For more information about Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, we invite you to visit www.mbts.edu.
For more writings, sermons, and lectures from Dr. DeRoshi, please visit www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.